Hi, everybody. Welcome to Read, Watch, Play. I'm James. I'm Cleo. And I'm Justin. And for this episode, we're joined by very special guest, Corinne. Hi, everybody. And today we're going to be talking about Looper for the second episode in our Lifetime Travel series. This is a 2012 movie directed by Rian Johnson uh, about a young man in, I think, what is implied to be the somewhat near future? I believe it's 2044. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. In 2044. And in this time period, time travel has not been invented yet. But 30 years from now, it will have been. I was really hoping I could remember enough of the monologue from the beginning of the movie to just give that. <laughs> that line comes around a lot. Oh, it yeah. does. He says that specific that line like three times in the movie, right? Minimum. So. Yeah. But it will be so wildly illegal, it will be only used by kind of black market underground gangs and used almost exclusively for assassinations. The premise of the movie is that this young man, Joe? Joe. I should know. Joe is what's called a looper. So he's a very specialized assassin whose job it is to wait for someone to appear at a very specific place at a very specific time, just out of nowhere, sent back in time by these syndicates in the future, shoot them as soon as they appear, and dispose of a body that, at that point in history, doesn't even exist yet. A big part of being a looper is, at the end of your run the last person who you have to kill is your future self. This is called closing your loop. When Joe's loop appears, he fails to kill him, and his future self runs away. And so Joe ends up having to track down his future self, or else he ends up in, in big trouble with, with his bosses. Right, who are also hunting him down by this point. Yeah. That's the point that we're going to be calling our spoiler line. Everything up through and including that is going to be before, and everything after is going to fall beyond our spoiler break if i remember i'm pretty sure that's like an hour through the movie that's like isn't that like half the movie but it's all stuff yeah, that's but in it's the trailer set up like yeah you know i know all stuff I'm... that you it's like kind of crazy that it takes that long but it is all stuff you like we knew going into the see the movie originally four years ago um also for some reason i thought that this movie involved trains and i don't know why were you thinking of source code no I mean, there, there is a train at There's one a train, point. But it was definitively <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt, and trains. And I don't know why <laughs> I thought that. I have no idea. Especially because I'm pretty sure neither of them have been in any other movie together. Especially not involving trains. No, definitely not. I, I really, like, you can't see me right now, listeners, but I'm, like, gesticulating wildly in confusion. Because why? Why trains? Who knew? I didn't. Time to write fan fiction, the Looper train <laughs> story. Look for Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Emily Blunt co-starring in uh, this year's remake of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Blunt will be playing the Steve Martin character, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt will be playing John Candy. Not John Candy's character, John Candy. <laughs> oh, I figured he'd just be playing the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the plane. Anyway, I thought, speaking of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, I really liked him. I mean, not this is... The, the phrasing, the tone of my voice made it sound like I don't like him in other things, but I really liked him in this particularly. Yeah, I think this is yeah. my favorite role that he has done so far. And Bruce Willis and him, I don't know, there's something about, they worked as the same person somehow. Even though I think, like, prior to seeing this movie, if you were to say, 
to me, pick two actors who can like play the same character at different points in their lives, I would never be like, oh yeah, those two, they're so similar. I mean, I will say, I think it plays more to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's strengths as an actor than Bruce Willis. Is. Like, Bruce Willis is a good actor, but he's also good at playing an archetype, and this is kind of that archetype that he plays, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is really good at playing to Bruce Willis's strengths as an actor, basically. The real thing is that line that he kept his mouth in for the entire course of the movie, because that is like the Bruce Willis mouth line. Like, it's such yeah. a weird thing, but that's exactly how Bruce Willis holds his lower face, which really worked. And yeah. like, I mean, huge shout out to the like makeup team. Oh, yeah. On that this was movie yeah. Because they made Joseph Gordon-Levitt look like young Bruce Willis. And like, I, I just, I, my brain still doesn't really accept yeah. it. It was like, yeah. it was so subtle and you could tell it was like all in like the, sort of like the jaw and lower face. Yeah, just the jowls. And, and like, nose. squaring him out a bit mm-hmm. and like adding that like firm line to the, to the mouth and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It was yeah, really amazing work. I feel like the nose is the most notable one. That Everything else feels like really subtle, like it's just there. Well, the mouth also wasn't the makeup This is the, the only team. thing I could look at. The I didn't even notice the keener eye. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'd say the, I noticed it too. I'd say the mouth is a good part, but the nose is the one where it's like, that's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt's nose. <laughs> right. I honestly exactly. did not even notice the nose. So, oh. Oh, <laughs> so right. I guess we're on different pages for that. Burns just a mouth person. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. You don't have just, like, celebrity noses, like, paper all over. <laughs> well, she does have celebrity mouths paper all over. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to Anyway, <a> Looper. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, also, I always this is one of those movies where I always forget Paul Dano is in it because he plays a kind of a small-ish role. Yeah, but he's great at it. Yeah, he's really great. I mean, it's really, he, like, he steals those scenes in a he way. He sold the panic. Yeah. yeah. He's good at playing, like, really fucking freaked out people. Yeah. I just saw him in War and Peace, and, like, he's just so distraught in that. Um, but I would I would probably call the genre of this movie neo-noir. I mean, other than, like, action, thriller, sci-fi, blah, blah, blah. I like to put, like, specific tiny Yeah, genres. I mean, I guess, like, neo-noir, it's, def- it's like a sci-fi neo-noir, basically. It's, yeah. I'm 100% behind that. Cool. All right, now that we settled that. Also, <laughs> telekinesis is a thing. <laughs> just in this movie. It's yeah. just like, and it got thrown in so, like, it's so blase. Well, my favorite thing about it is that it's never really, it's like, it's not introduced for a while. Yeah, it's, and yeah. And your first introduction of it is a couple minutes in when there's just a guy floating coins. Well, it's Paul Dano. He's, is like, Paul in the Dano? car. Yeah. And, okay. he's, and he's yeah. like, I'm going to pick up chicks this way. Chicks and love then, TKs. Yeah, and Joe is like, stop it. That is fucking cheesy as shit, like. Don't do that. Yeah. You're and, dumb, man. And it's like, what is it? Wasn't like 10% of the population has these telekinetic abilities, but it's nothing more than like you can lift a quarter with your mind for the most part. Yeah. yeah. If that. If that. It, and yeah. like. People in general are just like, like the people that have it are like not, you know, you're not talking about like Phoenix Force yeah. kinetics floating around here. It's like kind of the useless superpower thing. Yeah. yeah. Which I actually kind of love. Like I just imagine where like telekinesis evolves into like the human population and but it's, it's like totally shitty. lackluster it's just so shitty <laughs> everybody dreams that like you know those people who are sitting on your bedside and your glass of water is just too far away and you're like oh i really and you try and you know it's not going to happen but you still try just imagine the first person who's able to like tip the glass over and they're like <gasps> yeah. and they realize that's all they can ever do they can and never they... get the glass to come a foot to their hand they can just tip it over yeah they go through a whole training montage and nothing ever becomes of it. They don't get better. They just always suck. Yeah. I would watch that movie. 
short film coming to theaters near you. So what did everyone think of this? I mean, we... Yeah, I mean, this is, like, on, it's it's up there for me. I'm, I'm not going to call it one of my favorite movies, but it's it's very, very good. I, I really enjoyed it. Easily one of my favorite movies from that year, if not my favorite. Yes, definitely one of my favorite sci- recent sci-fi movies. Um, and there have been a few really good ones in, like, the past decade, I'd say, and this is definitely ranking pretty high for me. Um I think Joseph Gordon Levitt Gordon bleh, Joseph Gordon Levitt does a really good job playing that kind of anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually you kind of see him in roles that are a little bit more I don't know. Maybe it's just because I always associate him with 10 things I hate about you still. I just think a third rock from the sun. And third so. rock from the sun. But um I don't know. This role really suited him very well for some reason. And I think it's he again, I always talk about like likable characters versus unlikable characters and um I think this is an instance of having a kind of unlikable like he's not a good guy really i mean like if you were i wouldn't say like especially at the beginning of the movie that his character is like a good person he's selfish and he's like you know he's a drug like, addict yeah a drug addict and he's a criminal um but he's very watchable and you can like you're very invested in his story um whereas in other films that we've talked about i've talked about characters being unlikable and just being annoying because they're unlikable yeah um, yeah, I I also really like the movie. I just saw it for the first time, actually, on Thursday, because, I don't know, I just never got around to watching it. And I was, well, I was very surprised because there were no trains, and also <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. And I I enjoy things that can have, like, take a slower sort of pace. And like like we were saying before, this movie really, it took an hour to quote-unquote get going but all of the world building they did before that was really cool and satisfying and i love world building just all the time forever so it was great i loved it yeah i'm in i'm in the same boat this is one of my favorite certainly sci-fi movies of the last five ten years um i think that it there's a lot of things that it does right that a lot of a lot of traps that other things fall into that it not only manages to avoid but does so like really elegantly uh i think that just a, a lot of the ways that it deals with time travel in general are really smart. I think that it's it never it does a really great job world building, but it never gets so caught up in itself and just sort of up its own ass that it thinks like, oh yeah, I've got a great world to like sell these people. But it also has confidence in that world. It's like no, this is a world that is interesting and can be fleshed out to exactly the point that it needs to be, not just to serve the story, but to make the story feels like it's set somewhere real but without spending just huge amounts of time on things that ultimately feel almost sort of self-congratulatory yeah i want to say well the the ex the thing that i really like about it is that the expedition is never that heavy-handed because i feel like that's one of those traps that a lot of these kind of movies fall into and and that they were able to do it with that noir-esque, like, central character narrative, like, narr- like a narration voiceover. over the film. Yeah, your yeah. voiceover. That those things could, like, we could have an hour of setup and we could have this narration that a lot of people think is cheesy. And both things work incredibly well, right? And that, like, um, it's so mu- it's an hour of following, you know, Joe through his life and it just works, we get everything that we need. The world is built pretty successfully. And so that when things take off, we're like, everybody's set buckled in and along for the ride. 
It definitely felt like this gritty future without it being cheesy at all. Yeah. And again, with voiceover, I mean, that can go so badly. Like, I still have mixed feelings about the Blade Runner voiceover, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And other films of, you know, that type. But for some reason, it's just really, it really worked. Um, It definitely has that kind of Philip Marlowe, like, sarcastic, jaded. Yep. um, Very aware of the reality, the gritty reality of things. Even going along with that, I think one of the really nice things that the voiceover gives is not only does it link it to that tradition of noir that you were bringing up, Cleo, but it saves it saves a lot of what might otherwise be clunky exposition, like characters explaining the loopers to each other. And at no point does that ever really need to happen in this. It Joe explains it to you, the viewer, a few times after and you only get the information as you need it. The foreshadowing occurs just big time throughout the movie, but it's not the kind of thing where right at the beginning, the concept of having a loop run is given to you right away. It's just like, this is what I do, and sometimes people get away, because then you know immediately that's what it's going to be. You get it when Seth's loop runs. And as soon as that happens, you understand kind of where things are going, and even then the extent of that exposition is this is called letting your loop run. It isn't good. And that's all that you get. Cause that's all that you need to get. It's all very, you get the impression that there might've been like a lot of kind of like killing your babies that happened to make this go. That there were a lot of really cool expository lines or things like that that just went down to get this to be really as, as trim as possible in those segments where otherwise things can really fall into that trap of getting super expository. I think what I like about that in in that this is a time travel movie is that the whole, you know, it isn't good part of letting your loop run Mm. was like, it had nothing to do with time travel and paradoxes. It was all social, more or less. Yeah. Or, or, you know, business. Yeah. Yeah. It was all, it was all related to the criminal organization, which was, I think was really cool. It was like paradoxes, (laughs) whatever, maybe later. Yeah. They voiced like (laughs) some concerns over like, oh yeah, that's probably not a good thing, but like, we don't know what's going to happen, but let's just try not to like get there. Cause what I think is that like, it's not the reason it's not good for that reason is because the criminal organization as it exists in 2044 is good enough to like, they'll hunt them down. They'll find them. They'll get it taken care of. So like your loop is going to die. They're not going to get away. That's how it's going to happen. But it's not going to be good for you if they get away from you because they're still going to get taken care of. And then so probably are you. Yeah. Well, and even like in addition to that, going back to another piece of that narration where, Joe's describing is like when he describes what it is to close a loop and that this is kind of the, the fate of every one of the loopers. And he just goes, you know, this, this job tends not to attract the most forward thinking people. Yeah. And that you definitely get the sense right away that even, even Joe and people like Seth and things like that, the big reason why they, they could care less about paradoxes or any of like the time travel shit that can become very, like interesting as a reader and trying to figure out the world, they don't care. They're not the kind of people who would have cared otherwise. It would have been like, ah, you know, whatever, that's going to happen. Not my problem. But it becomes very much their problem when they've got like a gang hunting them down 
one choice they made that I really liked, especially when we're talking about like world building and exposition. I mean, it's so easy with these like action thrillers to have it always take place in a very urban area because the idea is like the city is exciting, the city is dark, but so much of this film takes place kind of out in the rural area. And is that a fucking spoiler? Uh, I mean, he does kill people next to a cornfield. Yeah, it's definitely there's definitely a kind of in the city out of the city vibe that the the diner where he sits and he talks to Beatrice when he's like after he's killed, killed each of the people. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I ever say what city it is. I was actually going to say one of my favorite subtle world building things they did was characterizing the city without yeah. going heavy handed on it. Yeah. Like that city is one of the best like it, it has the, just the lightest touch to tell you everything you need to know about that city yeah. to give you you know all the information you need it was really well done and i think things like that even it i think that spills over into another one of my favorite things about the movie which is just the general look and style to it and a lot of the sort of ongoing visual motifs but it that i completely agree with you Claire, that it's absolutely neo-noir but visually in a lot of ways it's very much a western i mean you've got kind of the blunderbuss shotguns you have these like long very like six shooter gat guns it several references to like rustling up posses and doing like literally those words the dusters yeah absolutely just what people wear it's this very it's very and the way that a lot of it works just kind of hunting down a fugitive it it feels very much like a western in those ways but it's almost all visual and things like that and it's the ways that you immediately get that characterization of how these social dynamics work just like you were saying, Corinne, where it was just like you get this sense of you understand the city because of these small visual things. You understand these characters because of these small visual things that tie you not just to people like Philip Marlowe, but to just old cowboys and sheriffs and hunting down bandits and things like that. I, I think they do just such a good job with that. The other Robert Mitchum films, because he does. He Sorry. He's an actor who said that he had played two roles. He plays a character who's on the horse and the character that's off the horse. So he did a lot of film noir. He did a lot of westerns because those two genres were very popular around the same time. So you have a, you know, a slew of actors who kind of did both things at once. And Basically, yeah. Brian Johnson really liked Robert Mitchum, and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Even though we were kind of talking about the fact that our, our spoiler line falls pretty far into the movie, it's actually a lot harder to talk about this than than I thought it would be. Do we want to start getting into spoilers? Is there a lot more that we can talk about before? I think we need to go into spoiler territory, honestly. Yeah, I think it's probably it's probably good. Yeah, it was harder than I thought. There's a lot of stuff that happens before it, but a lot of it is really to serve the, I feel like the we, movie as a whole. I feel like we discussed it, yeah, though. We, I mean, we really got all, that's the thing. It really is all set up, and it's one of those things where it only takes as long as it does to watch it because... It, yeah, because it's just it, how it is. It's a really it's good, made, it's cool, very well slow burn. Done, but it doesn't take nearly as long to just regurgitate it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, definitely come back next episode when we get into our third Lifetime Travel episode. We're going to be playing Life is Strange and start getting ready for our next topic, which is going to be Escape. We're going to be reading The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, and we're going to be watching The Prestige and playing 999, Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors. We talked about this a little bit on our last episode. I'm really excited for all of these. I, I can't really speak for everyone else, but I, I love this book. I love this movie. It's genuinely one of my favorite games. But yeah, so that'll be, that'll be our next series. So for now, spoiler break. So Emily Blunt's character doesn't show up until, I would say, like the second, the beginning of the second act. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
she plays oh god what's her character's name Emily Blunt. (laughs) That's the only Uh, thing I refer to her. Sarah? Sarah. I want to say it's Sarah. Yeah, Sarah. So she plays a woman named Sarah who's like living out in this basically like a farmhouse out in, you know, the countryside outside the city that we don't, this unnamed city. Um, And. Which the city is definitely not New York and the countryside is definitely not North Jersey. It's the vibe that I got. Maybe it's Raleigh, North Carolina. Could be. I just threw a random city out there. <laughs> just, just don't worry about it. Let's keep going. <laughs> but um, yeah, so and Joseph, Joe's funny because Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his character's name is Joe. Um, Joe, when after he lets Bruce Willis, aka also Joe, his uh, <laughs> run, uh, and by let I mean like he has a moment and like it's kind of an accident. Yeah, I think it's it's worth pointing out that. The loopers never know who they're killing. Uh, there's always a bag over their head, right? Mm-hmm. The only way a looper knows they're closing their own loop is when they go up to the loop and, and they'll tear open, like, the shirt or whatever it is that they're wearing. And every guy who's sent back has, like, silver bars, like, attached to his body. And that's the payment for the looper. Uh, when you close your loop, you get gold bars. So you don't know you've closed your own loop until you get the gold bars. When you get them, you go you know, back to the mob and be like, yep, just close my loop. Here's the gold bars. I'm going to take these. I'm going to take everything else. I'm going to go live the rest of my life and free of this contract until you guys come back and kill me. Great. Thanks. Um, so, but his loop shows up without a bag over his head. So he hesitates and, and without his hands bound. Yes. And without his hands bound. And so when Joe hesitates, his future self takes advantage of that and is able to escape. Can we just, talk about that whole thing because the way they did that like the the way they showed how we got to old joe was so good i loved the way they did that so much yeah um go, i would yeah. say go ahead except for the one very specific moment which is the first time you see bruce, bruce willis, willis with like kind yes of the oh long my god hair. awful yep. hair yep. and it's just the most jarring thing in a movie that is otherwise like yep. does such a good job of not being jarring. i mean like you get it but like at no point was I just like, oh, is that is that the same guy who it was before with the long hair? But it's like, <laughs> no. But I also understand this is clearly like a different person who put on half the wig. Yeah. <laughs> um, so future Joe escapes and knocks present Joe unconscious. And when present Joe wakes up, he is scared shitless because he knows that you know his company is gonna or his organization is going to be hunting him down we know this because we saw the other character what was his name seth seth because we saw what the horrific things that they did yeah to seth can we talk about that because that's one of the things where it's like the first time i saw it i was just like man that's really cool and then when i thought about it i was like oh that's kind of a paradox and i was like well i really don't care they they take seth and they they you know, he's, I'm going to find him. We'll close it. It's fine. And they're like, no, 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 we got this. Don't worry about it. Come with us. And then they cut to his future self and they show, I mean, it's so intense. He, he see, he doesn't feel it obviously, but he sees scarring show up on his wrist, an arrow. And he pulls his sleeve down and he sees writing, which is like, you know, be at this place by this time, but it's scarred into his arm. And, and so he starts to freak out, and he's going to run more, and then he loses – he has a finger gone, and then another, and then another. 
and his nose goes yeah, away. The nose yeah. going is he's like, driving a car. Yeah, and so he loses the nose and it cuts right, and he he gets a car and he's like there. He he's about there, and his foot just his whole leg actually. I think it's oh, up to the it? knee. Oh, I thought it was his, his foot pant the leg first goes. time. Oh, and then, I think it goes and then when he gets out bit. of the car, it's as he's, he's like, like walking, and then he loses half a leg. And and he get he gets like up to this door where he's supposed to be, and he's like banging on the door as his limbs are disappearing. You know, I'm here, I'm here, stop! Please. And they open the door, they kill him, obviously. And then you see his past self, like in an operating room, basically, where they've been doing all this stuff to him, and they're like starting to patch him back up. And it's really great because the scene right before this, um, Joe gives up seth yes yeah, i'm never yeah. gonna remember his name that's all dano <laughs> joe gives up seth basically for completely selfish reasons and you know we see his terrible character blah 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 and he said and but before he does he says are you gonna kill him and the boss he's speaking to is like not not if we can help it and that's jeff daniels playing yeah, that guy. yeah. It. yeah. and it's just like yeah we're not gonna kill him but you know look at all of the yeah he's, yeah it's, it's terrible. They're trying not to kill him because I think, like, because of the paradoxes, even though it's again, like, you think too hard about the science and it's. Well, that little... was, I mean, the thing about it that bugged me from a paradox angle was that if they do these things to him, but then they patch him up, his future self should never have had them done to him. And I feel like the implication of doing it as surgically as they were was that so they could do it without killing him. Like, I guess in theory, we never see them. I don't know if they're ever told to start putting him back together or we ever see them start doing that. It just felt like the implication to me was that. Well, I think that part of it is that um, the way that they have that conversation, Joe and Joe have the conversation in the diner about how memory works, about how everything's yeah. cloudy and and fuzzy up until the moment that present Joe does the action and then future Joe has perfect memory. But things from you know, things in present Joe's future are just possibilities. So I feel like it was the sort of thing where like they could only start patching him up once they killed his future self, because otherwise they would have locked in possibilities where he recovered from these injuries and they didn't become permanent lasting scars. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Oh, see, I took it even more as they were being surgical about it, but it wasn't as though he was going to have his leg reattached. It was that, they were just going to sew him up there, and he was not going to have that leg from there on in. Yeah, he'd also just possible. be maimed. And yeah, that, yeah. Because yeah. I thought, like, in order for, because if that were their intention to fix him, that wouldn't future guy already be fit. Right. That you was can't where think it about the logic for me too much. Um, about <laughs> but I do think with that explanation of memory and the way that works, it makes a lot of sense. Where like the current permanent state, like as far as the two of them in this state of flux are concerned, the current permanent state of present day Seth is missing all of these limbs and pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens to future Seth. Until they kill future Seth, then they can patch him up. Do you think if they future had, like, Seth is gone. chopped off his leg, but then immediately put a prosthetic on, would his future self have had a prosthetic limb? I mean, in theory, oh. maybe. Oh. They actually um, have a line in the movie where it's like, you can't think about this time travel shit or it messes your head up. So, in I, the spirit of the movie, yeah. maybe we should stop talking about this time travel shit. Um, <laughs> if we can take two seconds to discuss the two scenes in which the phrase time travel shit appears, because we just touched on both of them. It's the diner scene with Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it's the scene where they're uh, talking to Joe about selling out Seth. The boss. Yeah, where the boss is talking and it's these two instances where it's generally 
Jeff Daniels first movie was like, it's like you can't deal with all this time travel shit. And he just goes and when he's talking about why they don't want to kill Seth. It's like because, you know, we can't have this loop running around here. It causes too much trouble. But it, it's kind of what got me to that. I think it's that as soon as they cut the leg off, the leg is gone and he's just going to not have that leg forever. Or a nose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, the nose. But that's the thing. They like, do so much to him that, like, they might as well kill him. Yeah, but I think that's the important thing is they can't totally. Anyway, it time travel shit. But those two scenes, holy shit. Like, this is a movie filled with excellent scenes that involved just a couple people talking to each other. But these two are phenomenal. I love the entire conversation about just like, you know, oh God, these like, what are they like? These cravats. And he's like, oh, ties. It's like, yeah, why are you doing that? It's like, and just these movies that you're watching are just copying old movies. And this is a whole movie that we're sitting here watching that's pulling from these old noir movies and these westerns that's pulling it in. And everything's just copying old movies. But at the same time that this is something that feels so new and exciting. And that the whole end of that is like, oh, do something new. Put something glowy around your neck. And I don't know, just that the whole... It feels like this just gorgeous evolution of taking these older things but doing them up a little bit. Like Joe's suit jacket is leather, which is not something that you'd really wear as like a, a suit jacket. But the feeling of it is like just enough. And the way that like everyone like ties their tie is a bit off. But just those little things that I love so much about that. And then even what you were talking about where it's like where we see like Joe's character. My favorite thing about that is that they threaten to take half of his stash. Not even all of it. Just half. And that the guy even says, it's like, yeah, we're not going to take all of it. We're just going to set you back a little. And that's like that, that very literal, this is the one that's a bit over your head, but that literal trade of silver for his friend, it, again, a little bit on the nose, but sure, fine. I don't know. I His best friend also. I mean, yeah. given like friend here is like they're both killers and like they're not like having slumber parties and shit. But Joe's the one that Seth goes to when his loop runs. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I mean, if if you have one person to trust and that's the person you go to and then for half his stash. Because he wants to go to – he's learning French. That's a great character trait. It's just that little thing where he's, like – he's listening to, like, the how to speak French, um, like, audio tape – not tapes. What are the fuck they have in 2044? (laughs) (laughs) Audible. uh, iPods. Yeah. Yeah, iPods. Yeah. iPods. Yeah. Um, And while he's waiting for – you know the people, the people, his marks that he's got to shoot to show up. He's listening to like these tapes or not ta- whatever, like, teaching French, and he wants to go to France. And then there's that great exchange again with the Jeff Daniels character. He's like, "No, you want to go to China? I'm from the future. I know." Yeah, and he's going like, "I'm future, going to France." You go to China. Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie, or just one of my favorite single lines. It's like, "I'm from the future. Trust me. Go to China." Yeah, but and then to pull that time travel thing through to another great scene, just two people talking when they're sitting there in the diner, yeah. and it's. And they even got here to go back to the scarring thing where... Oh, one of my favorite dumb jokes. Oh, yeah. Well, building to a dumb joke, but yeah. Where Joseph Gordon-Levitt has carved into his own arm the name of the waitress at this diner who we saw earlier as a way of getting in touch with his future self. Which, of course, coincidentally, starts with the same three letters that we see when Seth pulls down the the B-E-A... Yeah, just the BEA. It might even be all BEAT. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, the the waitress's name being being Beatrice. Um, do you want to do you want to follow through with the rest of the dumb joke? Well, I don't actually I don't remember exactly who it is, right? But he, Bruce Willis walks in and he's like, "Yeah, cute." 
But, you know, the the other one. I think it's Jen or Jan. Yeah. Yeah. So the other waitress like, has a much it, shorter name. Yeah, it's like, you know, you could have just used Jen. It's like there's another waitress uh, who works here on yeah. weekend. <laughs> yeah. Fewer a much letters. Name. You're right. Fewer letters. But, yeah, but which is, again, a, for a million other reasons, though, I think another great scene, because it does get into what we've been talking about so much and just the whole, it, those great lines of just, I'm not going to sit and get into this time travel shit because we're going to be sitting here making diagrams with straws and you're just talking about like this is this is a precise definition of a fuzzy concept. Yeah. And that it's so important like the world building stuff I think. It's important for the movie that you have just enough understanding of this time travel shit that you understand it to be bigger and broader and it feels like you're working within a paradigm but you only need to know as much as you need to know to serve the story. It's, I think it's that same thing. It would be so easy to have this scene be this big, crazy expositional thing where they do start making diagrams with straws and explaining the time travel. And, I mean, God, how much worse of a movie would it have been if they had, like, done that? Like, it's interesting, sure, but... Yeah, and it's... I mean, this movie is really well done, but I think the... Just the writing of it and all of that stuff points to how talented Brian Johnson is. It's like, he's a great director, and he, he does it like a great job getting good performances out of everyone in this film, but it's just so well written and that's such a great strength of his. And I was, I was just like, I want more screenplays from Rita Johnson. So let's go back and talk about how we learn Bruce, Bruce Willis, future Joe, how we learn what future Joe got up to. Well, sure. So you, I mean, you guys remember it more freshly than I do because for the first time, and I don't know how long I didn't watch the movie today. (laughs) <laughs> um so what at what point is it that we cut from present joe's goings oh, yeah. on to so so yeah so present joe realizes what's happened realizes he's fucked and is desperate to fix his problem before his you know before his syndicate is like d- does what to him what they did to seth right and so he runs back to his apartment to try to grab some of his stashed away bars that he's been keeping and to just try to, I mean, get a handle on things and, and you know, start his own search. Only the the enforcers of his group are there. And um, he is in the process of, you know, trying to explain things. There's uh, a shootout. He's, you know traps a guy in his little bar safe and he's running running another guy's shooting at him he climbs over the the um railing to his fire escape and is climbing down slips and is falling backwards through the air when suddenly there's a cut we go back to the beginning of the previous scene right before he kills his future self everything goes off without a hitch the guy's head is bagged his hands are bound shoots him cuts him open realize or cuts his jacket open realizes there's gold bars realizes he closed his own loop and then we just see a montage of what he then does which is he goes to china not france he i think he goes to france and then china doesn't he does he uh yeah i, I can think, think of right. the dance club scenes and that stuff yeah, where he's yeah. like taking all the drugs and stuff that's in france so yeah he goes to france then he ends up in china and he then becomes an even worse criminal scumbag arguably because it's the only skill set he has yeah right? and so as much money as the bars get him it only gets him so far yeah grows his hair out long and then bruce willis and, loses and then it becomes bruce willis and his hair is he's still kept that same hairstyle despite how terrible it looks <laughs> 
it just enough to know oh look it's the same guy he started balding but kept his long hair what an unfortunate choice <laughs> future joe um meets a woman falls in love and then you know the the it's sort of like the cam the you know the, the fast forward kind of slows down into his you know life the, his this falling in love process with this chinese woman that he's met and do we ever learn her name i don't think so and she also has no so. lines yeah um though to be fair there's no dialogue at all yeah, yeah. during the flash forward which is the only part of the movie that she's no she's she's well like later on when she gets shot and you see that there bruce Willis has some lines with oh no that's true guys. yeah I forgot that we come back to, yeah, to and that. Where we, actually, where we speaking that. of how, the way the movie gives you information as you need it, at first he's grabbed by the enforcers, the same like group, you know, the same flavor of enforcer as we've seen before. Um, they take him. He knows what's going on, and we don't, you know, they they just they take him. That's the end of that sort of like capturing him scene, and then we see him. We see them ready to put him back into the past to get killed. He breaks free, knocks him unconscious, goes, you know, looks at a picture of his wife and his watch, and goes back into the past, you know, as as we saw him with... In the original. In the original right. presentation. Right. Without the, you know, without the hood, without his hands being bound, all that. And although it was a... It, I was confused for a second when that originally happened. I love the way they did that. It's it was so cool. No, it's yeah. so good. And then the the... One of my favorite shots in the entire movie immediately precedes the or um, follows this whole thing, which is when they show the confrontation between present Joe and future Joe over again, but from a single shot, mm-hmm. uh, a single like long shot. Yeah, and so you just see the whole sequence of events where like he fired like. You know, Future Joe spins, he fires a blunderbuss, it hits the gold, he grabs a bar, throws it at him, and it's just... But all from, like, you know, a single, unbroken long shot. And, it's, and not, like, slowed down at all, which I feel like they tend to... They slowed down the action yep. a little bit in the original scene. It was just all, like, in time, like, you know, a fly-on-the-wall view of things, which was yeah. really cool. But I think we brought up another important point, which was his Chinese wife from the future is was actually shot during that whole capture him scene. Right. So he, I mean, yeah. you can tell he's, you know, he's really mad about something and he's talking about how there's this new guy, the rainmaker who's closing all the loops, um, which we had learned from Seth, right? Uh, yeah. when his loop got closed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's saying, he's, you know, saying that this is going on and, and so we know this is happening, but this seems to be like the motivating factor for future Joe, as far as we know, until we learn that the real, motivation is the fact that they killed his wife and he's trying to he's come back to prevent or his goal is to prevent the rainmaker like he wants to kill the rainmaker now while he's a child in order to prevent his loop from being closed either at all or in that way so that his future wife doesn't die which i think is great because it shows how selfish he still is yeah like the <laughs> character like he, and that's the thing he's like he's a very moral person it feels like like he yes he's a criminal but it's like he he does things to bad people or he does things that he's told he has to do but he doesn't like he could very like present joe doesn't want to do the things like you would think if he was this like truly selfish like unmoralistic individual present joe would be like oh this like this will stop us from being killed okay i'm game but he's like you want to kill a kid like what the fuck is wrong with you mm-hmm 
right? And it's it's really interesting to like that kind of dichotomy. It's like present Joe feels like a generally moral person who is like ended up is like his life put him in a position where his only option was to you know be part of this criminal underworld, and it's it's it makes you wonder if like the continued events of his life are what make him even more selfish as an adult, right? Mm-hmm. Continuing to be a criminal, becoming more and more hardened. And that's why his future self is more the way he is than, than present Joe. And it's funny because there's that moment in the diner where the two Joes are together and young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Joe, says, okay, well, just show me a picture of your wife. I'll, like, when I see her, I'll just walk the other way. I'll never talk to her. And that is, you know, it's a viable solution yeah. to the problem, like, that she won't get killed because Bruce Willis will never get involved. But Bruce Willis is so, like, intent on still having that relationship Right, that he, he, wants brought, to, he wants a relationship more than he wants her to be safe, I, or he thinks he can get away with doing it this way. Right, because then she'll be safe, and they'll be together, and then he can keep her, like, he can yeah. stop his loop from being closed. E- even though it requires killing three children, because right. there are three kids who are born in on the same day in that hospital, yeah. and he knows it's one of them. Um, and, you know, just, this movie is kind of, I mean, besides, like, the torture and the cutting off the face and whatnot, I mean, a kid gets shot and killed in this movie that's like really fucking dark i mean that's like one of the things they say like don't kill a dog don't kill a child like those are the things you can't get away with and they go ahead and kill like a young like a kid like a 10 year old i was actually really surprised because killing kids is like one of the ultimate taboos for most people yep so i was really surprised and impressed kind of that the movie went there yeah I don't care about killing kids at all, so I was glad to see it. We clearly don't. We did an entire theme about it. Yeah, one of our first, our first, because that made a lot of sense. Great. (laughs) We went there. (laughs) We just really wanted an excuse to play Danganronpa. We did anyway. (laughs) um, Yeah, I think even even on top of that, towards the towards the end of that. that seems as you were describing it, Karen, when he, he looks at the picture of his older wife in the watch and when he, he brings that up at the at the diner, it I really like that a lot because up until then, it's a big difference that we see between older Joe and younger Joe. And they both, in a lot of ways, their life revolves around this watch. The difference is that young Joe, we see him there checking it, checking it a lot, waiting for his marks to arrive. And usually when we see the watch for young Joe, it's, it's an indication of coming violence. Like just in general, there's a lot of like clock motifs and themes throughout the movie and a lot of like ticking clock sounds. You get a lot of that in the, uh, in that flash forward and they almost always precede, uh, acts of violence by Joe. Even, even right up at the, at the very, very end that the ticking clock comes, comes in before that last, that last bit. But so it usually precedes these acts of violence by Joe. And I think it's a really interesting way of keeping that watch as being the the cause for that violence. So when he's young, it's because it's his job and that's what he did. And he, he gets roped into this life, arguably, not necessarily, but specifically the killing of it by robbing what he thought was a watch shop. And I think the implication is that that watch is probably from that watch shop. Mm-hmm. And even if not literally, at least metaphorically speaking, it is. Um, that that's what put him on this life that lets him afford something like that. But then later, it's also the reason for old Joe, because for old Joe, the watch is tied to his wife. And you have that, and he's he looks at that all the time, and that that watch is still the trigger for violence, just in a different way. But 
I think just the way that they shift that extreme where the the desire for that violence becomes more relatable, less just for, for money or for a job, and into because he wants to protect this person that he cares about, admittedly in maybe a, a flawed bit of logic. But the violence becomes that much more extreme. Like it does go from being an adult, which is not necessarily a good thing, but something that we're much more accustomed to seeing in movies and media to killing a kid. And just as those two ends become more extreme, your view of that character shifts a lot. I think it's just one of those things that they pull through really, really nicely. And just having things like Joe doesn't really check his watch once he gets out to the farm. But older Joe continues to check it compulsively as he thinks about his wife and he tries to hang on to that memory. So now we can talk about Emily Blunt. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Blunt. So I really liked her character. I liked Sarah and Sid, her kid. She she tells... Okay, so he seems really young to me. Like seven or so. But she tells What's-His-Face, the guy who, like, comes to, like... The other looper who comes, to, who's looking for Joe, mm-hmm. that he's ten. I was think, she trying to? She was. Was it a lie? Just to be like, oh yeah, he's older and not as defenseless, or like. Yeah, I think she wanted. Like she was very obviously lying at that scene. I think she wanted him to be older. Like she wanted to have you know a husband and an older son, so that you know she would seem less vulnerable. I think mm-hmm. was was the point of that because. Uh, Sid was, he was learning his multiplication table. So I would put that at about seven years old, like second grade level, but you know, he could be younger because he was a very, very intelligent child. So he might've been as young as like five. That kid's so cute. Also. (laughs) Sometimes. sometimes. (laughs) I think, well, I, as someone who frequently has dreams that I have a child and that child is the antichrist and I feel so proud. That took a turn. <laughs> Let's explore that I, a little bit. I thought I related to Emily Blunt's character in ways that probably nobody else has. Okay, so Damien is the next uh, Is my movie? offspring, probably. so. Um, it's just a frequent dream I've had ever since high school. It's probably an omen. Um, omen. The omen. Uh, <laughs> but, no, I just, I think they cast the kid really well. I think if that kid had been miscast, that would have probably been a disaster because so much relies on that character being like, because you need to have that, because obviously he has like super TK powers that kill people and like turn them inside out basically, or like explode them from the inside. So let's just make this clear. Emily Blunt's child is the Rainmaker. Yeah. He's the kid. Right. This is the big, like, so the thing about the Rainmaker that was said that I don't think we, we came across was that he was the most powerful TK Ever. Ever. Yeah, like, like... Like, the first powerful TK. Yeah. And it's not, like, it's not, like, most powerful ever where the degrees of power were, like, like could barely do anything, kind of powerful, moderately powerful, oh, pretty good. And then this guy, it was, everybody can float coins. He can rip people from the inside out and lift everything around him in, like, a 200-foot radius. He can explode houses. And... create shockwaves, implode. That Like, he was... It was, like... I don't know. I mean, I to the point where a... Emily Blunt, scared Sarah, has to like lock herself in a safe when he has a tantrum because he can't really control it, and he just freaks out and everything. All the furniture gets fucked up, and oh, so yeah. she has to like hide herself and like lock herself in a safe so that she doesn't get killed because her sister, who was taking care of him, um, and was like basically he thought she was her his mom, um, died because a bookshelf. A bookcase fell on him and he got scared and he it was an accident but he killed his his adopted or whatever his aunt 
uh, which is just like that's so. I mean, there are a lot of really horrific. There's kind of like some fridge horror or whatever, right? Where it's like you think about it later and you're like, wow. I mean, the first time obviously it's like, oh yeah, it's horrific, but then you really think about it later and you're like, that's incredibly fucked up. Also, Sid remembers that happening. Like Sid remembers his quote unquote real mother dying. So, yeah. One of the things that I really like about that scene that you were describing, Cleo, where we see Emily Blunt's character go and hide in the safe is that it's, I think they do a wonderful job of making it really unclear whether what we're seeing is literally what the kid is doing or we're seeing like the kind of profound effect that him being this upset is having on her character. Yeah. Yeah. And like whether she goes to that safe because it is literally protected from him like being the Phoenix or (laughs) if it's, yeah, caught that earlier. Um, or if she goes there because that's just a place where she feels she can be alone and she feels protected and she just needs some time to collect herself before she goes and deals with him again. And it's, I think they do a great job of just in general that whole, the whole Rainmaker TK thing of just, you plant the seeds of, all right, so we have, we have telekinesis. It's a thing that people can do. Most people can just float coins. And then we have, well, there's this really scary scene where the kid kind of goes nuts and she runs for cover. Not even that, but there's like, um, there's this guy called the Rainmaker. Well, why is he called the Rainmaker? Well, we don't really know. Uh, yeah. How did he, he just came to power all of a sudden and he took over everything. Well, that would have taken an army. He did it alone kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, those little things that they put together. And one of my favorite things about the way they do foreshadowing is so often they'll give you the very small piece of long-term relevant information immediately followed by something that is very important in the short term. So with the first time we hear about the Rainmaker, Seth will casually mention the Rainmaker, and then the Gat Men are at the door. Mm-hmm. And so he needs to hide. And there's something that immediately takes you, and it's not just like a, man, if only we knew more about that, and then like you cut to some <laughs> other scene or there's like something. It's just, here's some very relevant information that you can't do anything with right now, but also here's a situation that you need to deal with right the fuck away. Yeah, And they do a, such a good job of just sliding right past it and not dwelling on it and really making you move along. But so we have that. And then she goes and she hides and we see that the kid either has literal telekinetic powers or we've just seen kind of like a, a visualization of how scared Emily Blunt's character is. And then later we have her levitating a lighter, Mm -hmm. which is the heaviest thing we've seen anyone we've confirmed seen anyone lift. And she's got fine control of it. She's like circling it around in very broad circles, like pretty far above her hand. Yeah. Whereas the best we've seen before is someone struggling to keep a coin floating a few inches above. And she tells the stories about how guys would try and pick her up and they'd try and show off by floating quarters and she'd keep them down. So now we have this sense that, oh, well, she has above average TK powers. And if we'd seen that before we'd seen the kid freak out in the room, it would have been so easy to assume that it was literal. But instead, right. you're still not sure. It They do such a good job of that slow oh. build to when it all finally the goes reveal nuts. Is, the is reveal just... is just phenomenal so she like good. football tackles joseph gordon but like to get him out of the way before and you like... think she's trying to catch the kid yeah, yeah. Oh, just everything so about it he starts falling she starts running and then uh it's so good and then you just go and you see you see her determined to get joe out of that room but then you cut to joe's point of view and it's the kid standing there as jesse his old maybe not 
friend, but certainly someone you respected. Right. He even says he's like he's a good guy. He's not going to do anything. Like he'll, yeah, he'll figure out there's nothing going on here, and he'll leave, and he'll like, leave, and we'll be okay. But then you just see him held up as just blood starts to shoot from his chest. Just every orifice. I feel like it. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. That was. Oh my god, that scene was so well done. That kid actor has a really good angry face. Oh, yeah. No. yeah. That kid was horrifying. <laughs> yeah. But then even then, like that scene was so well done, but I love the shot after it where you see uh Joe and Emily Blunt's character Joe and Sarah like run through the house but the camera stays outside and you go and you see it's just like oh kind of shaken and then there's the window that all the blood came out of. And you go through and you hear Sarah just being like, oh, oh, no, and Joe realizing it's like, it's fucking him. You knew it was him as soon as I told you. How could you fucking not tell me? And just they burst out the other side of the house, and the camera has kept track, but you don't see them. So good. Cinematography is really, really Yeah, it's really strong. Really strong cinematography, really strong writing. It does other things very well, but let's see if there's any other stuff we could talk about first. (laughs) (laughs) Weird motif that I really like throughout the movie. It's very minor, but scary hands. <laughs> <laughs> do, do go on. Stick with me. Yeah. Um... That's okay. all oh. you, buddy. <laughs> no. So I have four instances of scary hands. Okay. <laughs> so uh-huh. early on, we've got old Shane and the first things that we see start being missing from his hands. We see the scarring and then it cuts back up and just a pinky's gone. Right, And, and just ring, slowly ring but surely the fingers are gone. And it's that first instance of just seeing his body parts just not even melt away, but just vanish. They're just not there anymore. We've got that a little bit later when uh, the Gatman, and I don't even remember his name, but kind of like the small time antagonist, the guy who seems like sort of like Joe's rival. He, it's the guy who's like kind of playing with his gun early on and everyone's making fun of him. It's like, oh, carefully go shoot off your other foot. Right. But they're going, he's chasing after Joe. He's in Joe's floor safe, and we close the safe on his uh, hand. And it's one of those, like, bizarrely enough, it's one of those first really visceral. But it's one of those first really visceral moments of violence. It's mm-hmm. one thing when someone just gets shot, but this is one of those where it's just like, it, you, you ever feel had your it. hand slammed in a car door? Yeah. That oh, fucking, yeah. Yeah. A little bit later, we have the moment where, when, um, I think. The Bruce Willis one happens first. So Bruce Willis goes down and he starts to go to sleep in the gutter. And he's going and he's just curling up for sleep. And you see a child's hand shoot in from off screen and cover his mouth. Am I the only one who remembers this? No, I'm getting I, blank I remember yeah. Yeah. I remember don't remember that. Oh, my God. I and then no- it cuts immediately to, to what's young it, Joe. Because it's actually him receiving a solidified memory of present day Joe, this thing occurring to him. Yeah. Yeah, of, that, was, that was weird. Yeah, was of Sid's surreal. hand coming over and coming Oh, so creepy. And then I feel like the last big one is as Jesse's coming into the house and Sarah tries to shut the door on him and you just see the door. He doesn't it seems like he doesn't slam his hand against the door, but Sarah slamming the door catches his hand. And it's this moment of before that he's been very polite and kind of creepy. But now he's actively intruding into the home. It's him saying, I'm going to be polite to you, but I'm also going to come into your house. This, like, safe space where you just said, no, you can't come in. It's that very intrusive, and you just see that, like, dark shadow of a hand on the door. It's it's weird, and it's small, but just every time another one came up, just as such a weird, creepy thing. I don't know. I liked it a lot. It's got to be a better name than, like, Scary, scary Hands. hands with James yeah. Phillips. <laughs> I don't know. It's a really, new segment we're trying. I really like this movie, you guys. Um, so... 
I guess to, I guess we've gotten this far in like talking about the general plot of the movie. Let's keep on trucking. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, yeah. So like, so like, um, Emily Blunt, Sarah. So Sarah's like, you know, he can be good. I just need to be able to love him, and um, Joe is like, you know, obviously he. Or what did she say? She said, he can turn out good. And Joe's like, he doesn't. Yeah. They go look for this. Ch- they come out of the house in that scene that James loves. And they go into the cornfield looking for Sid. And Joe finds Sid first. And he's obviously terrified and sad and covered in blood and crying and everything. And Joe goes over to him and comforts him instead of killing him which he could have done and would arguably be a at least like pretty rational if overly cold and practical like decision yeah it's like i just saw what this kid can do and like sorry but i'm gonna kill him yeah um so i think it doesn't doesn't um future joe get captured at that point or is that other or does other stuff happen right about then yeah yeah I think so. oh yeah yeah because they're like jesse is dead so they're gonna be he- back here and you've got like 15 minutes run and at this point we jump over to future joe who has been captured by right that guy. previous to this we get the scene where he's going to kill one of the other kids and it turns out to be the kid of this like stripper that present day joe was like in love with yeah yeah um side note was that piper parabo there were like sometimes yeah yeah i was like i was when i first saw her i like didn't i didn't see it but then like in later scenes i was like holy crap that is piper parabo yep all right well that's that continue um (laughs) so yeah anyway they they end up setting that up as a trap and that's how they capture joe and then we get a really cool day it's the one guy just lone wolfing it because he's been yeah the one guy who's fucked yes, everything Grace. up thus far yeah. um and this turns up turns out to be a huge fuck up right yeah. as they capture joe and bring him in and then he proceeds to kill everyone the entire organization yeah. is yeah. utterly destroyed by future joe on a very very diehard rampage yep. <laughs> yeah and it's it's kind of awesome there's it's, it's point, really great scene there's one point where he's like shouting something something motherfuckers at them as he's gunning them down with two smgs and i i I, I rewinded it like five times to see if he was actually saying yippee Kaye motherfuckers but i could not get any sort of like clarity on it so in my head he was shouting yippee Kaye motherfuckers oh yeah um so anyway he manages to destroy like the entire organization that exists in the present day does he he gets in and kills Jeff Daniels too? Right? Oh yeah, oh everybody. yeah, bullet yeah. through the head. Yeah. Um. So then he gets out of there and starts heading to the farm. But before he does, we get a great shot of him covered in blood, exactly the way that Sid was yep. after killing Jesse. And we have that great moment of in this time, who is the holy terror who's going back and tearing the shit out of the gangs? Not Sid, fucking Joe. Yeah. But his wife's dead. but Um, it's the same thing he saw his wife die it's so good yeah and so got every literally everything in this in this plot is loop um but yes so we get that 
we cut back to the, this is the reason none of the other mob people show up to the farm because they're all dead. Uh, but Joe shows up future Joe. And that sets off our last very important bit of action, which I guess I'll go into. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, the thing is that it's, it's fresher for you guys. And I don't remember the final oh, details. Sure. So like future Joe brings a literal truckload of money to present day Joe. And right. Says, it's full of silver and gold bars. right? Yeah, yeah. He just basically raided the entire place for bars, loaded them in a truck, drove out and then goes to present day Joe and says, just leave. Just go. Just take the truck and I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to do... Go, I'm gonna, go. I'm going to go, go shoot money. a child. You just take a literal truckload of money and go be somewhere else. You won't be followed. You're good. Um, uh, whatever his name is, who captured him and actually ended up surviving. I don't know if we ever get a name for him. I think we do in the movie. I think we do. It's it, just we so must at some point, but I just never catch it. Shot foot. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe we don't. Because part of my thing not. was that I remember the first time I watched it, I was certain that... Um, that that kid was also Jeff Daniels's character. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe as well. Right? Um, and I feel like part of that was that we never got the kid's name. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, anyway, so he shows up and he wants to kill everybody. And Joe kills him in the coolest fucking way possible. Right? He's driving the, the motorcycle at them. And Joe just has his blunderbuss, and he doesn't really know what to do because the the guy, other guy has the gat, uh, and he misses him a few times. Uh, the uh, the other guy, right? Mm-hmm. And Joe, like in this just moment of pure brilliance, just shoots the blunderbuss a whole bunch of times at the road to generate a smoke cloud. The guy drives through it and has no idea what's going on, and he shoots him with the blunderbuss as he drives by. You just see the bike. Like, come out of the smoke. It's so cool. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, But anyway, all of this has given future Joe time to go try to kill a child. Right. And, and I remember thinking, like, Emily Blunt, why haven't you gotten your murder kid away from here already? And then I was like, oh, it's only been, like, ten minutes yeah. of elapsed time. I can see why it's taken you... I'm impressed that you loaded the truck up as much as you have in that short amount of time. So they're going and they're driving down this long road between two fields. And it's really cool because, you know, you just see suddenly future Joe is there standing in the middle, of, like walking down the middle of the road. Yeah. And she's like, you can tell she's trying to figure out, like, is this my like present Joe or is this future Joe? And, you know, she when she realizes she lays on the gas and starts going and he starts shooting at them and this triggers one of sid's you know fear responses and he flips the goddamn truck yeah just front flips up and it lands right on the its roof right yeah yeah and neither of them die which is you know good wear your seatbelts everybody yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> especially if you're a, a seven-year-old child in the front seat of a truck five-year-old with, child with probably. telekinetic powers yeah um so they crawl out of the wreckage and they start running across the field and future joe is still shooting at them because he's trying to kill this kid and um and uh so we, we get the great confrontation right where she's standing there and future joe is like move like you move, I need to kill him. You need to move. I am going to make you move if you if it, right. So and it's this whole thing where she, 
the Sid is running toward the field, and as soon as he gets into like it's wheat, right? It's just like a wheat field or barley. She calls it cane at one point, which makes me wonder if it's sugar supposed cane? to be like sugar, sugar cane. cane. But it definitely yeah. doesn't look like sugar cane. I mean, yeah. maybe I just don't know what sugar cane looks like. I mean, I I, I get I, I don't know exactly what crop yeah. it is. It does it visually. It it looks like wheat, but yeah. she calls it cane at one point. So it's super dense. As soon as he gets in, like he's lost. Like he's no, no, not no. gonna be able to kill the kid. Not just yet. Well, no, I'm what saying if- this is the potential. Like, if he makes it that far, that's what the fu- the thing will be, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so he's telling her to move, and she doesn't move. He shoots her as Sid escapes into the into the field. And then he cuts into the field, and he tries to find him. He can't find him. You see Sid, like, on a train. Not yet. You You missed a part. He actually does hit Sid. A bullet grazes him across his cheek. Oh, that's and right. And this yes. triggers... This is, like, the climactic moment here. But your yours is important too. But this comes first. I thought it was the other way around. No, no, because that's where we see the the, the cut on Sid's oh, yeah, cheek in the train. Right. So Sid actually does get shot. The bullet grazes past his cheek, and he falls to the ground. And he comes up in holy terror mode, and like blast wave comes rocketing across the field. Present Joe's trying to get to them in the truck. It knocks the truck clean over, and he's got. Um, Sarah and Future Joe suspended in the air. And Future Joe's just kind of like, oh shit, because he dropped the gun and, you know, he's definitely going to die. And Sarah's trying to talk him down from right. this, from this, you know, rage slash fear response. And um, she actually does. She manages to talk him down. And it's very much like he zeroes in on her and she's just saying like, it's okay. Mommy loves you. Don't be afraid. It's okay. And just all that repeated over and over. And he he calms down. Everything settles. And she's just like, you know, good, good boy. And she hugs him and everything like that. Then we go to Justin, the scene Justin was describing. Right. And so all of the things I said. Yeah. Uh, Future Joe shoots her while she's trying to help Sid escape again. And um, Sid sees it as he runs into the field, but he keeps running because he knows he has to. And Future Joe, like, goes in, can't find him. We cut to the scene with him on a train holding, like, some cloth or something he found on the train to his cheek because he still has has the bullet wound. And this is, you know, the origin story. uh, Or no. That, okay. Yeah, this is all all in Young Joe's. This is what... This is Young Joe seeing... How this what, might, yeah, how this, this might so go. So they're, they're in the middle of the standoff, and Young Joe sees this happen. He can't get there. He's too far away. He only has a blunderbuss. And which had been mentioned that blunderbusses are only good for short range, and gats are good for long range. So, right. What's his face, nameless character, who really his name we just can't remember, mentions that in order to rub it into Joe, Young Joe's face, that yeah. he's kind of like higher status because he's got this gat. Um, and that all just comes back in this last scene. Where it's, it's the voiceover and Joe is saying, like, you know, I saw the circle, right? He, James, you probably remember this. I literally have it <laughs> written down. Go, go, James. It's all you. All right. So we cut to, we've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt doing the voiceover again as we're seeing all this. And he just says, like, you know, it's like a mother who would die for her son, a man who would kill for his wife, a boy angry and alone, laid out in front of him the bad path. I saw it. And the path was a circle, round and round. So I changed it. And in that moment... He takes that blunderbuss and he turns it back at himself, shoots himself in the chest. We don't actually see it happening. 
We've cut away at that point. We just see him pointed at himself. We've cut back to watching Bruce Willis shooting at Sarah and Sid. And Willis just disappears. No, nothing. Just gone. Yeah, just vanishes. Holy and that, yeah. shit. And yeah, it's just, I mean, that's 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 it, right? That's. I mean, you took a selfish a character who started out being like one of the most selfish people you could probably imagine, like selling out his friend, you know, to get tort, not even killed, just like maimed and stuff and like all this horrible shit. And then he does this like one final, maybe one of the only selfish acts he's ever really done. Yeah. And I it's think, the one that ends his life. I think there was even a line in there at some point. I don't know. I think he might have said it. Like, I can't imagine like people who would die for something. I, I don't remember exactly where this occurred. I literally just watched this on Thursday. I should remember. But I'm pretty sure there was a line in there where it specifically addressed like who would die for something like that's silly. And then. At the end, look, he did it. Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. And then we go and we just get like, we get very little aftermath. It's not like it just ends, but it it also does very little wrap up. We see, we see Sarah cleaning Sid up. We see Sarah collecting the silver. So we know that they've got something. A but, truckload yeah, they're, they're of just money. Set for life. Well, but at the same time, we know full well that silver's got strings. Right. Like this is this is something that up until now was being used basically as company script. It seems like the the actual like base value of this silver is not necessarily equivalent to what the loopers were getting back for it. They were trading it up as this is future money that we can give you present money for, but it's not going to be worth as much if you just take it outside. So this whole lot is 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 something for sure. But I think it speaks a lot to what old joe was doing when he brings him the silver because young joe doesn't necessarily know like he knows that his gang's got it out for him but young joe doesn't know that the gang is gone and like the way of turning of liquidating this silver is maybe more complicated than he thought it would be but so we've got this and we she cleans it up and it just we see it end with her picking up joe's pocket watch and running her fingers through her hair like he talks about his mom having done back like back in the city and through his hair. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, what did I say? Her, her hair. Her hair. Oh, no, yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> that would be a weird yeah, thing. Yeah, it was a Pantene <laughs> commercial. Yeah, though. it ends yeah. with a shampoo commercial. And it just ends with, because you're worth it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I feel like we've been sitting here, we've gone through a huge amount, we've gotten all the and we haven't even touched on, like, we haven't even tr- touched on so much of, like, how, like, drug use is used in the movie, and... All the ways that There's just so many good little touches. On yeah, that make it futuristic without it being like hitting you over the head. Like this is the future. Look how different things are. Look how high tech everything is. Yeah, because it, it that it's a realistic future, right? Because some so, bikes so much... fly. Most of people drive cars that don't fly. A lot of people right. are yeah. homeless. It's like it's like so much of the stuff where it's like it feels like a re- like things that are said in the future are so much but like look at how futuristic everything is isn't this so great all this future stuff and this is a thing where like yeah it's 30 years from now yeah a couple, we figured out a couple of cool things for the most part world's kind of the shame the shame the same <laughs> a little shittier and there's like a couple of new cool right it's like we still have tons of homeless we have a larger homeless problem than we did we like drugs are of course still a big thing but there are new drugs that are more advanced and do more interesting things to the human brain. Yeah. Right. But like, instead of like illegal drugs and hallucinogens being like eradicated because society doesn't need them, they've gotten more advanced. Right. It's like a, a darker portrayal of the future that feels like, you know, more in line with what we should expect to happen. 
Yeah. And I mean, even then, like it's, it's the drugs that they use, but just, I mean, we see, we see Joe and the rest of the loopers taking whatever the, the eye drops are, but we also have Sarah who we know used to have a life in the city and moved back out to take care of Sid after, after her sister died, who knows all about the loopers, who knows all about drops and the, like the withdrawal symptoms that Joe's going through. Yep. And I just love that one of the first things we see of her is her sitting in a chair outside miming smoking a cigarette. Like we know right away from that, that this is someone who had some kind of an addiction to cigarettes. It's not totally gone, but she's trying to come through it, that she has some kind of a life. And just the way that the movie overall like links those drugs to the city, but not totally. And when she, she smokes after she and Joe sleep with each other in very much a similar way to the way that cigarettes are tied to sex when we have the dancer earlier on who may or may not have actually slept with Joe, but the first time we see her in the back room, she's smoking and she's got a whole ashtray full of cigarettes. And just like those little touches and ways that they tie to each other and the way that we immediately understand that Joe and Sarah are going to have some kind of a meaningful relationship by the fact that one of the first things she does with him, for him, to him is help clean him up and help him through withdrawal, which is so much of what older Joe talks about and why, like, oh, man, you're going to meet this woman and she's going to clean you up and you're this, like, awful sack of shit and you don't deserve any of this and she's going to give everything. And, like, you understand why that relationship means so much to him and why it's so threatening when he goes and he tries to remember the first time he saw his wife's face and the memory that replaces it is the first time that Joe sees Sarah's face. Yeah. And... Just those ways of mirroring that and helping someone through a difficult thing like withdrawal. It, it's all these little things where imme- right off the bat, the drugs are a great way to understand Joe's character. Like we know that he's doing risky things. He's not very forward thinking. He's a looper. He's given himself a ticking clock in so many ways. And why that kind of mindset would be, yeah, sure, be a junkie. You're going to die in 30 years. Right. What does it matter? You know, yeah, you know this. You've put this timer on yourself. And I don't know, just that whole, it would be so easy for it to be just that, right? For it to just say, this gives you background for his character and to leave it at that and not to pull it through and have it mean all these things and tie it to kind of what the city means in this movie. I, I think all those little things are the things that make this so good. I think what we can really say about all of this is that this movie uses every single piece of you know, everything, every scene, every line, every, you know, costume choice, every thematic event, you know, everything is right where it's supposed to be in yep. this movie. I really, I cannot think of a thing that I thought, well, that didn't, that didn't feel necessary. Like, I really Not can't one. think about anything for that movie. This is an incredibly, incredibly well put together movie. Everything is exactly in place, and there's a huge, um, I'm going to call it economy of language, because that's what a writing professor of mine used a lot, but it's saying everything that needs to be said in the exact least amount of things that you need to say it, while still conveying everything you need to convey. Um, And that extends beyond, obviously, beyond the dialogue. It extends to sort of encompass all parts of the movie. You know, even to the even to the prosthetics that Joseph Gordon-Levitt wears, you know, economy of prosthetics. There's just enough to tie him and Bruce Willis together, and it doesn't go overboard, and it all looks good. Yeah. So, you know, 
I mean, this movie's sort of a master class of making a movie. <laughs> yeah. I like it's basically flawless. If you don't like time travel sci-fi stuff, maybe you won't like it. But maybe that's the thing. We can we have to say maybe. Yeah. Even if you don't like this kind of movie, if you don't like this that's exact how good this kind movie of thing, is. if you don't like people killing kids, maybe you won't like this movie. Well, yeah. It's not like killing kids is also shown in a good light. I mean, they're like it's in there because it's of how horrific it is, and like yeah. you also, have a really strong visceral reaction. To one that. thing I would say is that this movie I feel is kind of accessible to maybe people who don't care for sci-fi normally. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. That's why I said maybe. If like, you like movies, yeah. you'll probably like this one. In all honesty. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those like this is a good movie for people who love movies without being the kind of movie for pe- good movie for people who like movies that is so like unaccessible to the general public that it's like, mm, well, when I say that I mean it's just a flat out great movie. If you like movies, you'll see why it's great. If, you know, that's not so much your thing, you're still going to get a lot out of it because it's just so well crafted yeah i think and as weird as it sounds i think unfortunately for a lot of people that might be kind of holding it back like people who i think take movies very seriously the fact that this is a very accessible enjoyable movie if you just want like a story with a through line like the fact that it works on so many levels and i i don't really mean that as as a negative or kind of a a frustration with anyone, but I've genuinely met people who I think would regard something that is accessible and is, does kind of have that fun at the movies element to it as something that's not immediately highbrow, you know, that doesn't, right. that doesn't put itself into that conversation. It feels like this is a movie that knows it's going to end up in that conversation eventually and is fine with waiting for that. Mm-hmm. But the kind of thing where I, we've said this about a few of the things that we've, read or watched or played but this feels like the kind of thing that's going to be the kind of movie that people are going to be still talking about a while from now even if it might take a while for it to really get more than a cult following mm-hmm. but at least i hope so i if there's I mean, any justice in the world be, so yeah but but yeah i think that's absolutely true it's like the all these things that it does in these levels but that it's also so accessible and it doesn't just say i am this like prestige piece, you know, treat me seriously. I am capital F film. Yeah. You know, but yeah, basically we think you all should watch this movie. Absolutely. And if you've seen it, we think you should all watch it again. That's so good. I find new things every time I watch it. I'm, I'm not even kidding. I, and how many times have you watched it now? Oh, a lot. <laughs> well, you did have an awful lot of notes. Those notes were just from this one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But no, like, I I mean, Justin, you brought up, this was one of the first, like, the very first time we saw this movie was one of the first times we hung out back in, like, 2012. And just the number of people where it's just like, it's like, oh, we should watch a movie. You know what you should see is Looper. That's just my go-to for 90% of people. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> I guess we're wrapping up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... Thank you so much for, for joining us for that. I know we, we did something a little bit different this time. We went through much more... Sort of, like, straight chronologically. Yeah, and I think, as bizarre as it is for a movie about non-straight chronologies, <laughs> um, I think it would have been hard to do it any other way. This movie in particular, I honestly yeah. did not know how to talk about anything because it, it so much of the movie is foreshadow, is the setup for the next yep. big thing. Yeah. 
there's just very this wasn't something we could jump around in no. the way we normally yeah do. you really need to just go through and then talk about how that thing was foreshadowed or pointed towards or anything like that and just start revisiting the things from the past it's all it's all just loops and circles because every piece is exactly where it needs to be and necessary but so thank you so much for listening we hope that you come back next episode for Life is Strange. And then after that, if you liked this, I can guarantee you we're going to get even more into Looper for our topic episode at the end of the series. For sure. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RWP Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. Check out our Tumblr at rwppodcast.tumblr.com and look for our game streams on twitch.tv slash RWP Podcast.